0: Okay, let's take our Bibles and turn to Second Peter chapter one. And if you are using the Pew Bible, it's at on page one thousand two hundred and fifteen. And we're looking at the believers' responsibility for godly living. And let me read from verse 1 through 5, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 through 5. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received the faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, for this very reason also, all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge. I'll stop at the comma today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for, again, an opportunity to be in the Word of God to teach us how to live the Christian life. And Lord, thank you, Lord, that we are not left in the dark about what to do. It is clear what we are to do, and what we are to believe and whom we are to believe and whom we are to depend upon every day. And so, Lord, teach us that and remind us about these things often so we do not forget them. And make us believers who are fruitful and active. And, Lord, bless us as we desire to live for you each day. In Christ, I pray. Amen. All right, so... Last week, uh, I was saying that Christian participation in the divine nature gives believers a new ability to resist sin through the union with Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit, in which really the desire of the flesh is weakened and the desire to obey the Holy Spirit and to please Christ becomes a stronger desire that we have in our heart because we want to pursue holiness as a pattern of our lifestyle. So Christians, as they grow in holiness, they see their need to separate themselves from the moral corruption that is so much a part of our fallen world and that God, of course, we know restores us in salvation. He makes us spiritually alive. He recreates us after the image of the perfect man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this Lord's Day, we want to continue the admonition to use the awesome power that is available to us to grow in godliness. And we saw from Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4 what God has done. These things, in other words, that have been already done for us by God. It is—it's already been said that along with Christ's righteousness that he gives us as believers, he also gives us an ethical righteousness, a practical righteousness, a righteousness that we can live out every day of our lives. And that means that believers' nature is transformed so that he or she will manifest the character of God. And as we do that, as we grow in Christ, we cannot forget that, as the Scripture says, we have everything that we need for life and godliness, that our source of divine power is from Jesus, that the divine power is to live a godly life, that we don't do it alone, that the power of the Holy Spirit of God helps us to replace old sinful habits with godly habits, and that it is not just human effort I'm talking about. It is grace-motivated effort. It is not effort apart from the Holy Spirit. We can never do these things apart from the Holy Spirit. They can't be done apart from the Holy Spirit. So it is an effort in cooperation with the Holy Spirit to become godly, to become holy. So as we continue in 1 Peter, specifically looking at verse number 5 today, Scripture emphasizes as I said last week, the human side of salvation. And that, just just to remind you, that's not to suggest any form of work salvation. Everything's been done for us in salvation to be saved. We don't have to add anything to it. However, however true, faith must lead to works. Even so, faith, if it has no works, James says, is dead by being by itself. So, Works comes after initial salvation. Works are the fruit of salvation. And so there was two responsibilities that we started with last week. The first one was to have a diligent attitude toward growth. As it says in verse 5, for this very reason, also applying all diligence. So we are not to sit back, but we are to actually engage in an intense work As believers to live a godly life so we cannot be lackadaisical in our attitude towards godliness if we do then we are of course going to be unfruitful we are going to be unusable by God and it even could bring into question whether we're really a believer or not so we cannot miss the importance of the phrase in verse number five all diligence as I mentioned last week We are to bring every effort, we are to exert ourselves completely for the work of growing in godliness. So Christians are to take the human side of salvation very seriously by putting strenuous effort into our spiritual development. Because that is always the Christian's goal. We just don't sit there in the stands with our hands folded. We are in the game. There's nobody in the stands, actually. We're in the game. God's in the stands, watching. How we are we living our Christian life? So I said last week that discipline is the secret of godliness. Uh, it is, uh, there's really no other way to attain godliness. Discipline is the path to Godliness that God intends his children to be godly. That is his goal. We're not only saved to be right with God, but we're saved to be holy. We're saved to be godly. So God's going to do that. That's part of his work too. But we cooperate with that part of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. So that means that each day a godly person, not a perfect person, a godly person, a person who desires to be godly, well, remember, we're not going to be perfect this side of eternity. We still have remaining sin we have to deal with. We still have circumstances and people to deal with. We still have to learn the, the truth of the gospel or theology more. We have to know more of who God is. That's part of what we have to do and we are to do as Christians. So a godly person is, a, is really growing in their desire to please God in their being, in their thinking, in their speaking, in their doing, and yes, in their feelings. Biblical discipline, I said last time, included three elements. The first was the element of self-evaluation, to be aware of your own life, your life patterns. Our, all, all of our life patterns are different. Uh, and then, of course, take our life patterns and then evaluate them by the Word of God. So you really must determine whether your patterns of living are according to the old sinful ways or are they toward godliness? That's what you're asking yourself. The the old sinful ways, they have to be discovered. Uh, and then they have to be replaced by new patterns from the Word of God. So the Holy Spirit doesn't just zap instant holiness into us apart from Learning God's word, learning the scriptures. So we are to examine ourselves. The second thing is we need to discipline ourselves to uh, include that includes crucifixion. Now that we see our sin, the Bible says in Romans 8, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So it's our responsibility to put to death the deeds of the body. All right. After we identify them, of course, again, in In God's power, we have given everything. We're given everything uh, to live a godly life. So every day, by the guidance and strength of the Holy Spirit, we are crucifying the old sinful ways. We're saying no to them. We're saying no to that old rebel that's still that voice inside of us. And that involves self-denying ourselves, as Jesus said in His the Gospel of Luke that we must deny ourselves and we must daily follow him. And, of course, denial of self is really a denial of the self within. And by self, again, he meant old desires, old ways, old practices, old patterns that we acquired before conversion. When we get saved, we bring a lot of baggage into our Christian life. We really do. And, and we have to start discarding that so it's like you're, you're on a ship and you know the water's getting into the boat because of your sin and you've got to start throwing over the, all the old baggage all the old sin so that thing stays afloat all right so that's kind of like a good picture of what it means to be a Christian and so taking up your cross really means to put the old man and the old life old life patterns to death and as we do that we put off the old and we put on the new. You don't ever put off the old without putting on something new, right? You don't take your clothing off and walk around without clothing. You want to put new clothing on, fresh clothing on, new clothing on. And of course, this is spiritual clothing. You want to put off old sin and put on righteousness. And so you're you're saying no to yourself all the time. Nope, sorry, I'm not doing that anymore. No, I'm not going there anymore. Nope, I'm not hanging out with those people anymore. No, I'm not going to be involved with that habit anymore. No, I'm not going to do that anymore. Why? Because Christ don't want me to. And it's not beneficial or good for my Christian walk. And it doesn't produce godliness. So why would I want to do it, right? And godliness always is the road also to joy and peace and happiness. You'll never hear that in the world. Because in the world, it says, gratify your flesh. And the Bible says, says, put it to death. But God replaces it with something better. What a desire for him, and a view of life that it actually produces joy. So the Holy Spirit enables a believer to put off the old man and put on the new man. And, of course, that led to a third discipline, or actually breaking down what discipline is, and that involves practice. We have to be practiced. You want to get good at something, you practice it, right? For uh, the Bible says in Hebrews 5.14, but solid food is for the mature." Because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So continual daily effort is an essential element of the Christian discipline. until God behavior until Godlike behavior change is no longer something you have to do, but actually it's something you become. In other words, if you practice something long enough, it becomes just a habit, a good habit, not a bad habit. And it becomes a habit that is very good for you as a believer. So that led to the second the second um, foundational, or excuse me, the second um, responsibility of a believer, and that's in verse number 5 too, that believers are to have a determined action to add to their faith. It says, for this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith, supply. In the New American Standard, it says supply. In some translations, it says add to or some, give something in addition to. So the, actually, the, the word translated supply, is a, it's a strong word. It's an imperative. It's a command. And we are commanded as believers to supplement, supplement our faith, to add to our faith. That means that our faith is not uh, just a dormant faith. It's an active faith. Another way to think of this command is to bring alongside what God has already done, every ounce of determination we can muster to bring these things, these qualities into our Christian life. So Christians are called to express in action the nature of God that is created in us. And, and as I left you last time with uh, the illustration Martin Lloyd Jones gave of a farm, where he says that we are given a farm by God's grace. We are given all the implements and the tools uh, that are necessary, and we are given all the seed that is ne- necessary, and we're, we are called as believers to farm it. All right? And of course, it makes uh, no sense telling a person to farm if they don't have a farm, or if they don't have any land, or if they don't have any tools or seed, nothing can be done. But God says, I've given you all of those things, now go and farm. Go in your life that God's given you, in the time he's given you, with the circumstances he's given you, in the family he's given you, with the church body he's given you, go farm. Right? In other words, We must add to what God has given us. We must increase in it, and we must proceed to grow in it. Diligence plus addition to faith equals spiritual growth and godliness. So add to your faith what? Seven qualities. Look at verse 5 through 7. It says, in your faith, in the middle of the verse... In your faith, supply, moral excellence. That's the first one. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. So here is the ethical list of virtues to be lived out by the Christian which constitutes a godly life. This is a godly life right here. This is what it entails. So this is what Christians are to do. This is what Christians are enabled to do. And this is what Christians are disciplined, are to discipline themselves to do. So believers are to add, they are to supplement their faith. And faith here means trust In all that God says and does, that it is true and it is to be obeyed. It is trustworthy. It says, in your faith, in verse 5, supply moral excellence and in your moral excellence knowledge. Now, in ancient times, the term supply was actually used in the context of outfitting a chorus, And and that means provide in addition to something. So. So, in other words, the end that a person would give a lavish outpouring of everything that is needed to have a noble performance, an excellent performance. So we Christians are to lavishly supply to our Christian faith all the virtues until it culminates in Christian love. So your faith, again, is a living faith, it is an active faith, it is an energetic faith. It is not a dormant faith. And so we are to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in adding to our faith. And as Philippians tells us, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So we are to work out what God has worked in, what he has done inside of us. He always working from the inside out, not from the outside in. So if you notice in our passage that I just read, in verse 5 through 7, we are not, to, we are not left to guess at what we are to add to our faith. We are given seven qualities to work out in every avenue and compartment in our life. They are, one thing I want to, want to mention, they are not worked out one by one. They are not worked out, okay, I did this, I did this. No, it's actually, you have to think of it like this. They are. It's like we are growing in them all at the same time because the Spirit of God is doing it he's growing all these things in us at the same time. Five of them appear to be characteristics that grow out of one's relationship with God, that is moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance and godliness, and the last two represent one's relationship in his or her uh, towards his or her fellow man like brotherly kindness and love. So these are the two starting qualities we add to our faith is moral excellence and knowledge. Those the, These lay the foundation for all the rest of them, that faith is the root from which these virtues must grow. Now, of the seven qualities that we are to grow in, two are foundational qualities and two are directional qualities. So this Lord's Day, this Lord's Day, let us take a look at the first of the two foundational qualities. I thought I would get two of them done, but that's not going to happen because I, I when, once I started looking at it, I, it says this is way more here than because we're talking about a character of God that we're to live out in our life, right? So if you notice the two of the two foundational qualities, the first one in verse number five is that in your faith supply moral excellence. right? Some translations say virtue. Others may say goodness. So we are to supplement our faith with goodness. I think goodness is a good translation. And nobody's born good. Nobody's born virtuous. I mean, Romans is, is pretty clear on that. In Romans chapter 3, none... Are righteous, none seek after God. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's what God's view of man is. No one's good. So if no one's good, how can we be good? Well, because of sin, we cannot attain to the standard of goodness. For it says, for all have sinned and fall short of that standard of goodness. However, as we as Christians now, we're believers. We have the divine nature that we're participating in. So believers in Christ can actually live out God's goodness by His grace every day of our lives. And this is this is the first one that's mentioned. So it has to have some importance uh, as being the first thing. And and you really, if you think about it. Uh, The first communicable attribute really describes God and Christ as described in, uh, look up to first, well, if you look back to 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse number 9, it says, 1 Peter 2, 9, it says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies, the same word of Him who has called you out of darkness into marvelous light. So we are to proclaim the goodness—we can translate that—the goodness of God, who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And of course, right back in Second Peter one three, uh, verse number three, the same word used, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence or goodness. So it's a moral characteristic of of uprightness, of righteousness, of goodness. This quality of goodness is to be demonstrated Uh, In our living, good habits formed, fleshly desires discarded on a regular basis, that we are to be people who have honorable behavior, not just the absence of bad habits, but a pursuit of what is morally right, what is morally helpful in our relationships, not only our relationship to God, but each other. Goodness goes a long way in living in this world. So moral excellence is the state achieved whereby the soul operates on the level of goodness. So the virtuous person would not be believed to have done an evil deed despite reports to the contrary. Somebody will say, no, that person couldn't have done that. Why? Because their character of goodness is so uh, visible and has been so much in practice that's very highly unlikely that person is the one guilty of that. And so that's how God wants us to live. He wants us, th- not not that somebody could bring a false exact uh, accusation against you and then make it stick, but you consider Joseph in the Old Testament, all the things that were brought against him that were not true and that were hateful, and yet He maintained the virtue of goodness all through his life, and God exalted him at the right time and at the right moment. So many of these qualities that we are looking at here, uh, we must realize that Christians are able to live out this virtuous life not because of our own efforts alone, but because of Christ's life in us. See, that's how we're able to do it. And and many of these qualities we're asked to add to our faith are actually the fruits of the Holy Spirit from Galatians 5. So we are to grow in them. They are to occupy every part of our life, and they are to be increasing in influencing our daily lives. So you know that the more I thought about it, the more I realized it is not easy to define goodness. Think about it for a minute. So when I went to the Webster's New World Dictionary, I found that I was not alone. Because Webster had 17 ways to use the word. Because you know what? Everybody has their own view of what goodness is. So we can't go by that. That's not a good standard, right? Now, from my recollection, I believe that Webster was a Christian. And many of the definitions he got from words, especially a word like this, he got from the Bible. So Webster listed 17 terms that you can understand the word goodness from. And his universal definition for goodness was a general term of approval or commendation. And that's not a bad general term. You know, it's, it's okay, I approve of that. I mean, it's good. You know, or I commend that. That means it's good. But that can mean anything. So I found the closest use of the word fell in number 13, which defined good like this, morally sound, excellent, virtuous, honest, just, pious, devout, kind, benevolent, generous, sympathetic, well-behaved, dutiful. Those are all good words that describe what it means to be good. I mean, parents can use all those words with their own kids to define whether you're n- not doing good or you're you're doing bad. <laughs> right, of course, the opposite of good would be evil. Uh, it would be bad. So the Word of God speaks often of the goodness of God because that's where we really have to go. The only way we can get somewhat of a picture of what good is is by looking at the character of God in Scripture. So the Word of God speaks often. Matter of fact, looking at this word, I was, I was just overwhelmed by the passages of Scripture that actually talk about the goodness of God, because the goodness of God, in, even in the Hebrew, is also translated loving-kindness. Uh, and we see that word all over the place, so the Word of God speaks often of the goodness of God, like for example, in psalm one nineteen in verse number sixty eight now that's the big psalm in the in the Old Testament, it's the largest one, and it says this: "You are good and do good. teach me your statutes. so just think of that for a minute. you are good, God is good, right and He does good, and that's exactly what goodness ought to be. It ought to be start from your character and then work out in doing something. So in Scripture, we find that goodness is is something that God wants us to have in our life. And so this passage says that God is good, and from the core of his being and from the absolute perfection of God flows out the goodness of God. It was one of the old Puritans, uh, actually Thomas Manton, who wrote this about God. He says, he is originally good of himself, which nothing else is, for all creatures are good only in participation and communication from God. He is essentially good, not only good, but goodness itself. He is infinitely good. He is eternally and immutably good, for he cannot be less good than he is, as there can be no addition made to him, so no subtraction from him. So all emanates from God. His decrees, his creation, his laws, his providences cannot be otherwise than good. Also, we see the goodness of God really come out in several areas in Scripture now if uh, Just keep your hand there in Psalms We're going to look at some of the verses in Psalms, but just think of it the goodness of God is first seen in creation as It is written in Genesis chapter 1 verse 31. It says God saw all that he had made and behold it was very good and There was evening and there was morning the sixth day so right there in the beginning of the Bible we see a display of God's creation and everything God created was very good. Second thing is that the goodness of God is seen in the highest of God's creations. And the highest of God's creation is man himself. We're in Psalm 139, in verse number 14. This is a very uh, well-known psalm. It says there in Psalm 139, verse 14, and I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well so everything about our bodies shows god's goodness just think of it for a moment our hands are uniquely designed for work our ears are uniquely designed to hear sounds that form meaning in order to understand and communicate especially ultimately to hear the voice of god The complex orbs called our eyes displays images in which we can see things in order to navigate our world and further understand our surroundings. Because our eyes are so important, God even provides eyelids and brows for their protection. See, the Lord in his goodness even appoints sleep to refresh a weary body. So the goodness of God In a third way is exercise also toward all his creation. In Psalm 145, in verse 15 and 16, the word of God says, the eyes of all look to you. You give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. So this is all the goodness of God coming out to his whole creation, wherever whatever living thing there is god's abundant provision has supplied their every single need have you ever heard a sparrow begging for food or squirrels lacking for acorns i'll tell you why they're not lacking in east millstone we got we got very large squirrels here that's all they do is eat dig things up and eat. So whether it be birds of the air or beasts of the field or fish of the sea, they are supplied by the good hand of God. God is the one who feeds them. You don't see them worrying about that, do you? No. But we worry all the time, and we even have things provided to us, and we still worry. Psalm 136 says this, listen, it says who gives food to all flesh for his loving kindness is everlasting give thanks to god the god of heaven for his ever his loving kindness is everlasting again that word everlasting can be also replaced by the word goodness his goodness is everlasting even as it says in psalm 33:5 he, he loves righteousness and justice the earth is full of the loving kindness or the goodness of the lord So this Hebrew term, kadesh, goodness, kindness, it's translated also faithful care or loving kindnesses of God, all of them express the goodness of God, found all over the earth. And yes, this world filled with sin, filled with sinful desires, subject to decay because of moral corruption, when you look around honestly, Everywhere you look, what do you see? You see the goodness of God. Just waking up this morning was God's goodness to you. Remember when the rich young ruler came to Jesus, and he says, good master, and Jesus says, only God is good. So he put it right where it should be. Only God is good. So the goodness of God is also seen in the variety of natural pleasures which he has provided for his creatures. Think about it for a moment. God did not give us food just to satisfy our hungry. He gave us a large variety of meats and vegetables and fruits with all kinds of flavors in order to satisfy us with food that tastes good. Food tastes good, right? It's not like eating styrofoam or sand. It tastes good, and we desire food. We desire different kinds of food. And we have, in America, we have the choice of pretty much anything you want, anytime you want, right? So we, we are, we're we given this, and what what is that? You know what that is? That is the goodness of God towards us. That is God supplying all our needs way far beyond what we could ever ask or think. So he gave us a large amount of herbs also and spices to further enhance the flavor of, Of our food so that we can enjoy them so that we can enjoy food it actually tastes good Uh, what does that reveal it reveals his goodness and it was the Lord who said but I say to you love your enemies pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. What does that reveal? You know what that reveals? The goodness. It's called the common grace of God to all humanity. God displays that every single day. So the Lord God did not have to give us or grace us with beautiful, colorful flowers for our eyes to behold, along with the sweet-smelling fragrance for our senses, a sense of smell to delight in. He didn't have to do that. If you take the time to look around, you may be overwhelmed by the abundance of God's goodness. We should be, as Christians, being saluted by the delightful music of sparrows in the morning. should remind us, really, not to worry. And not to fear. For the Lord even says in Luke, He says, Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, you are more valuable than many sparrows. So, should the birds remind us that God's good? I think so. But are we listening? Are we looking? I don't think we always listen and look because we're so busy. Because we live by this thing on our wrist called a wristwatch, and we have to be at places. We get on the road, we rush here, we rush there, we rush there, we rush there. We get through our whole day. We're, we, we're beat by the end of the day. We, our, our head hits the pillow, and we fall off to sleep. And not once, sometimes, in those days do we actually look and notice the goodness of God and give him praise for it and thankful for it. Thankful, uh, just being thankful for what he has. Maybe, maybe we, well, we could be like the old saints, where in Chronicles it records, let your priest, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation and let your godly ones rejoice in what is good. The Psalms are filled with rejoicing in the attributes of God's goodness. If you're right there in the Psalms, look at Psalm 23, verse 6. One of the most famous Psalms in the Word of God, and listen what David wrote in this Psalm. Surely goodness and loving kindness or mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. While he's, while he's tromping through this world with all the warfare that David was involved with, he did not take his eyes off of the surety, the foundation that he had in God's goodness. I would not make it if it wasn't for the goodness of God. I would not make it. And then look at Psalm 45, 145. Psalm 145, look at verse 4 through 9. Very interesting uh, passage here in Psalm 145, verse 4. It says, One generation shall praise your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts, 145 verse 5, on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works I will meditate, verse 6, men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness, verse 7 of Psalm 145, they shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. Look at verse 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. In verse number 9, the Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. See, that is the goodness of God, and you see that the goodness of God is seen in what he does because of who he is. He wants us to do the same thing as believers. So the goodness of God appeared most eminently when God the Father sent forth his Son to be the perfect, sinless sacrifice in order to die and shed his blood in the place of lost sinners. Where we see in Galatians, and when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so he might redeem those who, who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons see maybe more than in anything else is not the gospel considered good news isn't that what it means the angels when they pronounced Jesus coming wouldn't they say I bring you good news of great joy and then the answer to John the Baptist, remember John the Baptist, when he was in prison, he sent back to the disciples, and he, and he said to the disciples, is, is he the one, or should we look for someone else? And this is what Jesus told the disciples to tell John the Baptist. He said to them, go and report to John what you hear and see, that the blind receive sight, that the lame walk, that the lepers are cleansed, that the deaf here and the dead are raised up and the poor have the good news preached to them. That's all he needed. Why? Because that's exactly what the prophet said. He just really gave us what the prophet said. And then of course, the message of salvation is the message of good news. Where it's recorded in Romans chapter 10, how will they Preach unless they are sent, just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good tidings. So, God is a God who is a good God, and even if God saved no one and left all to perish, it would have been no reflection on his goodness. Would God be good if he punished not those who misused his blessings, who abused his benevolence, who trampled his mercy beneath their feet, as it says in Hebrews? Would he be good if he let that go? No, he wouldn't. He, would, he is good in his justice and his righteousness as well in his, his daily activities. As the prophet Nahum tells us, the Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble and he knows those who trust him who take refuge in him so the nature of God is always the same he is always good always good always good so when God's people see that God's hand is neither invisible or non-existent and that his providential care is a reality well then A response ought to flow out from their own soul, thanking God for his goodness. We ought to recognize that the drop of morning dew gleams his glory and that every speck of dust bears his impression. Yes, that our great God is within us, keeping our hearts in motion and around us, giving us the air we need to breathe to sustain our life. So then Christians are to add to their faith God's goodness. That's what they're to do. Well, how are we to do that? Well, let me point you to other passages of scripture that really tell us what we are what we are to do once we are saved and now participating in divine nature. I think of passages like Titus chapter three, verse eight, where it says so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. And then Hebrews 10 and verse number 24, it says, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And then just look at a couple passages in Romans chapter 12, In that you have to go forward in Romans from Peter, if you're in Peter. Uh, Romans chapter 12 and verse number 21 It says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what? With good. See, we're called on that. We're called, after all that theology, that's what we're called on to do. And then Romans chapter 16, and verse number 19, it says, for the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. Who's supposed to be like that? Believers are supposed to be like that. That's who we are supposed to be. So, according to Scripture, we are to provoke or excite each other to labors of love and of good works. That's what it says in Hebrews. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Love is the motive. Good deeds is the practice of love doing good deeds adorn the gospel and glorifies the father who is in heaven. And if you just think about good deeds for a moment, that's exactly what God is asking us to do. He's asking us first to be vessels of good deeds. And that means we have to be cleansed and set apart. 2 Timothy tells us, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful, to the master prepare for every good deed. And then, of course, there are certain motives that go with good deeds. What should be the motive of doing good? Glorifying God. It tells us in Matthew five sixteen, good works. Show your good works before men and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And then the objects of good deeds would be that of all kinds of people. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they would see your good works. The purpose of good deeds would be to provide and meet needs. Like it says in Titus, our people must also learn to engage in what? Good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. It seems like doing good deeds and being fruitful go together. It goes together. We're going to find that it goes together there in 2 Peter too. And not doing good deeds or not living out goodness in your life actually leaves no fruit at all. It's unproductive. It's 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 useless. It doesn't provide anything. The realm of good deeds is your own giftedness, how God made you. For it says in Ephesians two, ten, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared before him, so you should walk in them. There is the doing of what God has done in you. And then of course there's the preparation of good works in that scripture. That all scripture is inspired of God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The direction of good deeds is really fruit-bearing, or prayer, and prayer. It says in Colossians 1.10, So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. And the general nature of good works is simply everything everything in anything you don't have to wonder about what a good work is a good work is anything you do for the lord if you give a cup of cold water right doesn't it say that and you do it unto the lord that is good work but i like the passage of scripture in first timothy five in verse number 10 where when it talks about the general nature of good work when i when i say anything look at the, this passage it says now it's talking about a woman here who was a widow, and it says in 1 Timothy 5:10, having this woman has a reputation of good works. And then it says this: it tells us what it is. And if she has born, brought up children, breaking up children is a good work. Yes, if you bring them up in the love and admonition of the Lord. Right? And then it says: if she has shown hospitality to tra- strangers, good work. If she has washed the saints' feet, that shows honor to the saints as they walk into the house from a a culture that is dirty, and just to wash off the dust from their feet is is shown to be a good work. If she has assisted those in distress, if she has devoted herself to every good work. So if we just consider it that Good work could be a care package, could be a letter to someone, could be an email or a text to someone, could be giving someone clothing, food. Just give them companionship to talk with them, to clean their house, to mow their lawn, to shovel their snow, to pray with them, to invite them to your home, to bring them to your church, to give them a ride to the doctors. All that comes under everything a Christian does is to be good. That is the motive it drives them to actually carry out that goodness from their heart to other people. And that's always the good, and that's what God has done and shown us in Scripture where it says, And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, truly I say to you, they shall not lose their reward. their reward, Matthew 10, verse 42. So the affirmation of good works is really a vital proof part of the proof and the fruit of salvation it proves you have a living faith it proves and affirms that you are a child of god so virtue getting back to the text virtue is the high state of mind it's the high state of a of moral ability perfected over years by walking with God. It's practicing this every single day. You may not be good at it. I mean, let's face it. It's hard to love people. It is not easy to love people. You may love the ones you like because they're like you, but how about loving someone who's unlike you, who's contentious, rambunctious, a thorn in your side, how do you do good to them? That's what we're called to do because that's what God has done with us. He's been good to us. See, virtue or moral excellence or goodness is a condition whereby day and night, any day or any night, weekend, we can be sure that a virtuous person is living a righteous life no matter what pressures may be placed upon them because they believe from Scripture that is what they're supposed to do that's how they add to their faith and the only place where empowerment for the virtue of goodness is found is at the cross of Calvary and the Church of Jesus Christ is to be the custodian of these precious qualities and commodities. And when we realize them and know this, that every single person here can carry out the characteristic of God's goodness in their life, every one. There's not not beyond us. And we're given help by the Holy Spirit of God to do that. And how we do that, we're to take every effort exert everything we have to make sure that we add to our faith moral excellence or goodness. This virtue is vital. And it's first in the list of communicating to the world the goodness of God. Right? Because I believe there's a lot of people in the world who have never experienced goodness from another person. We, We can talk about Somebody being mean, someone being de- degrading, someone being just someone just blows people off. But a Christian is to be someone who is good to people, and not only just to the people you like, but also to your enemies, right? If your enemies are hungry, what do you do? You feed them, brethren. That that is not easy. We need God's help for that. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again. Your word is, is so um, convicting, Lord. And Lord, forgive us when we have not, we have not displayed goodness to people. Forgive us, Lord, when we've been mean, when we've been condescending. when we have not considered our brethren and those around us. I just pray, Lord, that we would be able to carry out the things said in Scripture. That this very day, Lord, we would be able to add to our faith diligently, with great effort, the characteristics of the goodness of God that flows in us and out through us to those that we have contact with every single day. And Lord, let us practice it until we get good at it, until it becomes a habit that we don't even think about it, we just do it. And I pray in Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together.